Welcome to the Talks at Google podcast, where great minds meet. I'm Alex, bringing you this episode. Talks at Google brings the world's most influential thinkers, creators, makers, and doers all to one place. Every episode is taken from a video that can be seen at youtube.com slash talks at Google. Dr. Nim Tottenham is a professor of psychology at Columbia University and director of the Developmental Effective Neuroscience Laboratory. Her research examines the brain development that underlies emotional behavior in humans. In this episode, she discusses evidence showing how early social experiences, such as caregiving and stress, may influence development through learning and modification of developmental pathways. These age-related changes are discussed in terms of potential developmental sensitive periods for environmental influence. Moderated by Googler Luke Lee, here is Dr. Nim Tottenham, The Emotional Brain and the Role of Early Experiences. Hello, welcome everyone to Talks at Google. Uh, today, I am very excited to welcome Dr. Nim Tottenham. In today's talk, Dr. Tottenham will discuss the development of emotion regulation and the role of early experiences. I'll now turn it over to Dr. Nim Tottenham. Hi, everyone. Um, good morning, good afternoon, good evening. I hope that this is finding you and your loved ones as well as can be. Um, so today I'm here to talk about stress, in particular stress that happens early in life and how that may or may not affect our development. So I'm going to be talking about the emotional brain and the role of early experience. So the research in our lab addresses an age-old question in psychology, which is, how is it that we explain this enduring link between experiences that we have early in life and our emotional functioning later on in life? For example, our ability to regulate or calm our big emotions. And the approach that we take in our laboratory is to understand how these early experiences might be influencing brain development. And for today's talk, I'm gonna be focusing on two regions in particular. The first is the amygdala, this deep set of nuclei in the brain that help us uh, with emotional attention, as well as learning about the relative safety and danger of our environments. Now, when we're feeling really big emotions like fear, we tend to see increases in amygdala reactivity. And conversely, when we're feeling calmer or more regulated, we see amygdala activity decreasing. Now in adulthood, the amygdala has this strong set of connections to the prefrontal cortex, in particular, the medial prefrontal cortex, right in the middle of the prefrontal cortex. And the medial prefrontal cortex is this large swath of tissue in the front of our brain that's really well positioned to gather information from lots of other regions in the brain, including memory areas, perceptual areas, and other higher cognitive skills that all together help regulate some of the overactivity of the amygdala. So we can think of these connections as a physiologic bridge connecting the prefrontal cortex to the amygdala to allow for better communication between the two. So we study how the system develops over time to better understand the role of the environment on our emotional behaviors. 
Now, this has clinical implications because if we look at a number of developmental conditions that are associated with poor emotion regulation, we tend to see that they show their peak age of clinical emergence right at the beginning of adolescence. And so that motivates us not only to focus in on adolescence, but to also pay attention to the antecedent period during childhood to understand how the brain is constructing itself and how environments at that time are influencing that construction. So I'd like to share with you um, an early study from our laboratory where we invited individuals between the ages of four and 22 years old. These are all healthy, typically developing individuals. And we presented them with fear faces. And the reason we use fear faces often is because for the human, when we look at somebody else's fearful face, it's a really effective way in activating our amygdala response. And so this type of stimuli can help us produce, in essence, a growth chart across childhood, adolescence, and young adulthood of what the amygdala is responding to. So we present our participants with these fear faces, and then we also are collecting MRI scans. So we can take pictures of the brain as we're looking at these images. So for those of you who have never seen an MRI scan before, here's a film of a child. This is actually my daughter in a practice MRI. So we use practice MRIs um, so that children can get acclimated um, and know what they're going to experience. And here she's wearing a set of goggles through which we can present those fear faces. Um, right now we're acclimating her, so she's watching SpongeBob SquarePants, and that's why she's laughing. But we'll stop SpongeBob, and then I would tell her, now we're gonna start the fear faces task. So when we look at all of our participants, we find this large age-related change in amygdala's response to fear faces. And that's what I'm showing you here in this blue blob. This is the amygdala and the blue represents that age-related change. Now that's a little bit hard to look at like that. So I'll pull out these data and plot them here. Here's age on the x-axis and here's amygdala response or reactivity to those fear faces. And each dot is a different participant. And what you can see is the strongest amygdala response is occurring at the youngest ages. And that makes a good bit of sense because when you're younger and relatively new to this planet, you have a lot more learning to do about the relative safety and danger of the environment. So you want the amygdala kind of chugging along at an early age. Now we can ask questions about the prefrontal cortex. And um, many studies have shown that the prefrontal cortex develops very late relative to other structures in the brain. And I'll show you a demonstration of that through this video, which basically marches us forward in developmental time from early childhood to young adulthood. And these are data from the National Institute of Mental Health. We've got the front of the brain here, the prefrontal cortex, and the back of the brain here. And red colors indicate immaturity, Blue colors indicate um, maturity. So what you should notice is that the prefrontal cortex is one of the last regions to turn blue. That is the prefrontal cortex is one of the last regions to reach maturity. 
So now we can return to our functional MRI data and ask questions about those connections or that bridge between amygdala and prefrontal cortex. And the metric that we used is called functional connectivity. And it works like this. We can extract the time course of activity from one region like the amygdala and plot it over time and extract the activity of the prefrontal cortex and plot it over time. And the degree to which these two regions are correlated or are in sync with each other gives us an indication of their connectedness. And so using this type of metric, we see large developmental changes. So on the right here, I'm showing you not activation, but I'm showing you a metric of that connectivity between the amygdala, which you can't see in this slice, and the prefrontal cortex here. In adults, we see this nice red blob indicating strong connections or strong communication between amygdala and prefrontal cortex. If you look over on the left, you'll see that that orange blob is missing in children, suggesting that these connections between amygdala and prefrontal cortex are not quite mature yet in childhood, and they're taking a long time to develop. So putting these data together, what we're seeing is here's age on the x-axis, and we get this nice, robust, strong amygdala reactivity in childhood, but it's happening in the absence of these adult-like connections between amygdala and prefrontal cortex. And we don't see those connections emerging until the beginning of adolescence. Moreover, this switch from the childlike state to the more adult-like state corresponds with big changes or big maturation in emotional behaviors in children. So this the nature of the neurobiology in childhood has made us really pay much more close attention to this region as potentially a good candidate time to think about how the environment might be getting in at you know stage one to really influence the way that this system is going to construct itself. So in other words, the environment may have an exceptionally large impact on this neurobiology that regulates our emotions because it's um, so at such an immature state. So um, we've looked very closely at the role of early experiences in childhood on the development of emotions and neurobiology. And we're really motivated by a number of rodent studies that have shown that stimuli that are learned or things that we're exposed to early in life can actually endure into maturity. And we can actually use those stimuli in adulthood often to reduce our distress or reduce our anxiety. So let me demonstrate what I'm talking about through this study of a colleague, uh, Takao Hench at Harvard. He used a mouse model. These are adult mice and he placed them in an open field. It's basically a big box. And if you do that, mice find the center of the box very threatening and intimidating. It leaves them vulnerable. So they will run to the corners where they feel safer. In this study, one corner had a nest that was silent and one corner had a nest that played music. Now, the typical adult mouse will prefer to run to the silent nest unless during its mouse childhood, you pre-expose that mouse to music, in which case in adulthood, that mouse will now start to show a preference for the music nest. And this preference is specific to the song. 
if during their childhood they were exposed to, say, Beethoven Symphony Number no. 1, then in adulthood they prefer Beethoven Symphony Number no. 1 and not jazz or vice versa. So not only is this preference, um, need, does it need to be learned during childhood, but in adulthood, when you play the mouse their childhood music, they start to show decreases in their anxiety. They will start to actually wander out to that center of the square. And when you look in the brains of these animals, these are um, cells firing within the medial prefrontal cortex of adult mice. Here is the brain when they're listening to music from their childhood. You can see the prefrontal cortex is very active and that's associated with stronger connections with the amygdala that helps quiet down the anxiety in the animal. And that's relative to the, to the very little amount of activity when music from adulthood is played to these animals, for example. So we were really inspired by this study for a number of reasons. And the main one is that music may give us an opportunity to ask similar questions in humans, whether humans are similarly learning about stimuli in a special way during childhood. And we didn't use classical music or jazz because it's kind of hard to know how old you were the first time you heard those songs. Instead, we decided to use pop music. And we could use data from the billboard charts to feel more confidently that you heard that song a lot at a particular developmental period. So we could presumably get in the sweet spot of that learning zone in childhood and um, not get other periods of life like adolescence. So to give you an example of how this study worked, um, we designed the study in 2012. So we brought in young adults, 22 years old, for example, in 2012, and we wanted a stimulus from when they were children, say about seven years old. So if we do the math, that means we want a stimulus from 1997. So we searched the archives and we found a stimulus that was really helpful to us. For example, music by the Backstreet Boys. So here's what we did. We first needed to stress out our participants as was done in the mouse study. They were stressed out by being placed in an open field. Well, that wouldn't work quite the same way in humans. We stressed out our participants instead by administering hard SAT problems to them. These were UCLA undergrads and um, we gave them these hard SAT problems and we stood over their shoulder and timed them. And we told them that they were doing pretty well, but a little bit below the average UCLA student. And so they should try and increase their accuracy and speed it up a little bit. Then they got rest periods, they got breaks. And during these breaks, they were presented with two radio stations. One would play music from their childhood, so quit playing games with my heart by the Backstreet Boys. And the other radio station would play songs from their adolescence, so like Justin Bieber and Ludacris. And the question was, under duress, do we see people tuning in to one radio station more than the other? Similarly to with the mice, do they prefer one nest over the other? And what we found was under stress, people were gravitating towards their childhood music. Importantly, this isn't about them liking the Backstreet Boys more. 
But under duress, they were gravitating more towards this as if it's sort of comfort music in a way. Not only that, even though everyone reported feeling stressed, if people were listening to their childhood music, they showed decreases in their physiologic stress. And in the scanner, we saw that childhood music was increasing medial prefrontal cortex activity. That's what I'm showing you here. And strengthening the communication between prefrontal cortex and amygdala. Such that the more that prefrontal cortex was activated by the childhood music, the more people reported decreases in anxiety due to the stressor. So this study gave us a little more confidence that we should keep looking at environments that are learned or experienced during childhood. Now, if we um, think about the development of the amygdala and the prefrontal cortex, it's often easy to think about it as growing up in a test tube, the way that we might see in textbooks. But in actuality, this neurobiology is growing up in a very special environment, which is the caregiver. So for humans, the caregiver is a species expected stimulus. And this is a universal for humans. Um, in humans, the caregiver, the primary caregiver might be the mother, the caregiver might be the father, the caregiver might be an adoptive mother or father, it might be the grandparent and so on. So the point that I'm trying to make is that this close attachment relationship is learned it's not something that we're born with. The other thing that I want to point out about humans in particular is how long we spend hanging around our parents. So in most animals, species, you know, you, you think about this juvenile period as occurring on the order of weeks or maybe months. And in humans, it's on the order of years or maybe even decades, depending on your family structure. And this has always struck me as a really curious design that Mother Nature gave us because it is metabolically very expensive for a parent to raise another human being. So any of you parents out there know what a huge energy suck it can be to raise a child. So why would Mother Nature design us this way? And the argument that we find most compelling is that this prolonged period of immaturity and hanging around our parents gives us the luxury of a lot of years of brain plasticity. In other words, it gives us a long period of time to do all of the massive amount of learning and practice that we need to do in order to become the incredibly complex organisms that we are as adults. And so in that way, we can think about parents as providing a scaffolding around our brain development much in the same way that scaffolding might surround the construction of a building and the ultimate structure closely resembles the scaffolding that was once present. So the, we turn again to the rodent literature because the rodent literature is much more advanced in addressing these questions about the intimate relationship between the parent and the development of the amygdala. And so I'm sharing with you here research from my colleague, Regina Sullivan, who's at NYU. And um, what she's shown, I think, is pretty remarkable. Here's rat age on the x-axis. And what she's found is there's this period in development, early in development, when the functioning of the amygdala is critically dependent on whether the parent is present. So if the parent is 
present in the nest with the rat pup, the parent actually decreases amygdala reactivity. It's buffering amygdala reactivity in the rat pup. And if the mother, if the parent was out of the nest, that same rat pup's amygdala will increase. And that happens only within this window of time early in development. So the parent is essentially turning on and off the amygdala through this buffering process. So how does that play out in terms of behavior? Well, the number one way to test amygdala functioning in the lab is through something called Pavlovian fear conditioning. And many of you may remember how fear, how conditioning works. If not, I will remind you. So in her studies, she takes an initially emotionally neutral stimulus. In this case, it's a peppermint odor. And she pairs it with a mild foot shock. Now, you and I would learn that we don't like that peppermint odor. And the reason we would learn that is because we have an amygdala that's reactive. The amygdala is responsible for learning to avoid that peppermint odor. And so that's how she tests this. She places the peppermint odor in one arm of a Y maze. And what she generally finds is animals will avoid that peppermint odor because their amygdala is learning that avoidance behavior for them. So um, in young rat pups, she finds that if the animal learns the association between a peppermint odor and a mild foot shock without their parent present, that means that the amygdala is free to turn on, then this animal will do what you and I would do and it will avoid that peppermint odor. However, if the mother is present in the nest, when the animal is learning these associations, the animal will show a behavior that many people think is odd. The animal will approach that peppermint odor. And that's because the mother's presence has turned off the amygdala and it allows approach behavior to occur. So in other words, the animal will learn to approach a stimulus if it was learned in the presence of its parent regardless of whether the stimulus had rewarding value or aversive value. And so the reason this occurs is because this preference for things to for things that are associated with the parent, this behavioral preference for things associated with the parent is the foundation of what we call attachment behaviors. And attachment is the survival strategy of a young animal. So unlike the adult who uses fight or flight as a survival strategy, those strategies are useless to a young animal who can't do either very well. Their number one um, strategy for survival is to attach to a caregiver, regardless of if it's associated with positive or negative valence. Importantly, this effect of the parent relies on the parent being calm. A calm parent can block stress biology in the offspring and change the offspring's behavior. If this parent was distressed or anxious in any way, then this effect would not happen. If anything, the distressed parent would exacerbate stress in the young animal. Now, many human researchers were captivated by these findings and were curious to know 
are humans um, experiencing a similar effect of the parent? That is to say, are parents effective buffers of stress uh, physiology in their children? And so one of my colleagues, uh, Megan Gunner, addressed this question with children and she uh, administered a powerful stressor, which is a public speaking stressor. It's a very effective way to increase our stress and increase our stress-related hormones, including cortisol. So importantly, before children, what, before children gave their public speeches, they prepared this speech either sitting next to their parent or sitting next to an unfamiliar um, experimenter. And what she found was when children prepared sitting next to that unfamiliar experimenter in blue, they showed this beautiful elevation in cortisol. But when they prepared sitting next to their parent, the parent effectively blocked that cortisol elevation. So parents were buffering the cortisol response in their children. Importantly, um, this effect was not observed in adolescents who showed a beautiful cortisol response regardless of who they were sitting next to. So we were also interested in this parental buffering effect, but we wanted to return to that rodent study and see if learning that fear conditioning paradigm worked the same way in humans. So we uh, returned to the Pavlovian fear conditioning paradigm with three, four, and five-year-olds, and we presented children with a blue square, which co-terminated with an aversive stimulus. It wasn't a shock in this case. It was a horrible noise, like loud nails down a chalkboard. And they learned that the blue square meant that noise was coming. The purple triangle was never paired with anything. It was safe. So children either learn this association alone or with their parent present. The parent wasn't doing anything. They were just physically present. After conditioning, the parents went away and we developed a human Y maze, which was essentially a play tent that children entered. And um, they were asked to pick a door, either the one with the square or the one with the triangle to retrieve a prize. And we told them that, and we showed them that there were the same bucket of prizes behind both doors, but we were just interested in which door would they choose. So would they choose this nasty blue square differently as a function of whether they learned about it alone or with their parent? And what we found was when children conditioned alone, they did what you and I would do. They avoided that nasty blue square and they preferred to get their prize from the purple triangle. However, just like the rat pups, if children conditioned in the presence of their parents, they showed that intriguing behavior of preferring that blue square because it was learned in the presence of their parent. So um, we interpret these data to suggest that in humans, parents are effectively buffering this fear response in children as well. But we don't yet know neurobiologically if we're seeing similar effects at the level of the amygdala. So we brought children back into the MRI scanner and we presented them with cues of their parents. So it would be pictures of their parents that they saw relative to pictures of somebody else's parent that they don't know. And what I'm showing you here is amygdala activity. And in children, we see that the amygdala 
decreases its activity in response to the parent cue. So this is consistent at least with the rodent data showing that parents are effective in buffering overactivity of the amygdala in their children. In adolescents, we didn't see that effect. Um, adolescents amygdala was reacting no matter uh, who they were looking at. And that's not to say that parents aren't important during adolescence, they absolutely are. But it may be by the time we get to adolescence, parents are starting to lose their efficacy at the level of the amygdala. So taken together, these types of data are informing this model where here's development on the x-axis. And it may be that during childhood, parents are routinely increasing amygdala activity and routinely decreasing amygdala activity. And that system, that interaction with the parent is helping to entrain the way that this system operates. In other words, relative to other stimuli in the environment, parents may have a privileged pathway into these circuits and therefore a privileged pathway into their child's brain development. And importantly, what we think is what is happening during this period has longer term consequences for the neurobiology related to fear, stress and emotion regulation later on in adolescence and adulthood that we can better understand these individual differences and in outcome as reflecting the nature of learning that happened earlier in life. So to conclude, um, today I've said that the human amygdala medial prefrontal cortex circuitry develops very slowly, but that perhaps there's great value in that slow development for us as a species. This gives us a long time for learning about emotions, for learning about our own emotions, for learning how to regulate emotions. And we see that at both the behavioral and the brain level. And we don't see the transition to the adult-like brain state until about the beginning of adolescence. And therefore, parents, they're not the only important people in children's lives. Certainly teachers and coaches, extended family members are very important, but parents in particular may be a primary social regulator of amygdala medial prefrontal cortex circuit development, having this privileged pathway um, into children's brain development. So with that, I would just like to thank our funding sources, acknowledge members of the lab, which you can see here, um, and especially many thanks to the families and individuals that participated in these studies. And I'd like to thank you for your attention, and I'm happy to take some questions. Thank you, thank you. Thank you for that very interesting, interesting talk. I mean, it really highlights the importance and the long-term impact of caregivers on children's development. Uh, so, so yeah, we have some time for questions from the audience. Please, again, submit your questions to the YouTube channel live chat. Okay, um, let's go ahead and start with questions. What advice, Nim, would you have for parents on creating a nurturing environment for kids? Yeah, I, I think it's a great question. Um, I think what I pull from uh, these data are really an appreciation for how how much power parents have to create a nurturing environment for their children. And um, one of the ways that parents can do that is through um, 
making sure that they themselves are well taken care of. I think that this is especially important right now in the midst of this pandemic where everyone's stress level is um, elevated, um, some more than others, but to really um, make sure that we as parents are taking care of ourselves and staying socially connected and staying regulated ourselves. Because what we see is the emotions, emotions of the parent are so closely read to our children. And I think um, providing that sense of safety and security in the home is really one of the most important things that um, children's brains can take away from that experience. Relatedly, I would also add, um, this has implications for taking care of families as a whole, um, that if we care about children's development, then we also need as a society to care about parents and um, providing the necessary supports um, for families um, in the long run. And that's that's obviously a much bigger question. Very interesting, yeah. We really um, amplify our own emotions to our children. Like if we feel stressed, we amplify that in children and vice versa. Um, great, let's uh, move on to a second question. Nim, can you comment on how should parents balance using rewards versus punishments to shape kids' behavior? Um, I, you know, I think this is an age-old question um, in psychology as well. I think that, um, you know, generally what people find is that children respond well to um, positive feedback. Um, but importantly, I would, I would, this kind of reminds me of, you know, my answer to the previous question, which is um, paying attention to our emotional temperature as we're giving children feedback about their behavior and sometimes tuning things up too high, um, whether good or bad is not necessarily you know, uh, what we want in the long run for our children in terms of what they're encoding about the situation. I think really focusing on um, children's intrinsic um, rewards for their own behavior is probably one of the more enduring ways to keep that good behavior going. Um, and, you know, focusing on the effort that children um, put into something rather than making all the focus about the reward or all about the punishment. Um, in, in terms of children's misbehavior, um, the research tends to show that really having affective explanations with children or explanations to children that help them develop a sense of empathy for someone that they may have wronged is much more effective in building that long-term empathy than simply punishing a child. Because when you just punish a child, what that does is it focuses their empathy on themselves because they feel bad about what they do. But instead, um, having conversations about um, linking cause and effect, their behavior with the outcome that it had on somebody else seems to be a really um, productive way for children to think ahead next time. Great. Thanks. Yeah. Um, let's move on to the next question. I read in a study so Ryan Mather asks, I read in a study that the ability for people to self-regulate is very difficult to improve uh, after age seven or so. Do you agree with this based on your research? 
Yeah, thanks, Ryan. I don't know that study, but in general, what um, we've seen and what other groups have seen is that emotion regulation takes a long time to develop, period, right? It takes about two decades to see um, adult levels of emotion regulation. And in fact, emotion regulation, if we if we move the age span out even further, seems to continue to improve well into our aging years. So, um, so I think that that right there um, suggests that this is not sort of you're, you're done at seven and then, um, you know, you're set for life. But instead, what we've seen, um, and I didn't talk about it here today, but um, in children who are very vulnerable to poor emotion regulation as a consequence of severe early maltreatment, um, we have seen improvements in individuals during adolescence as a function of improved environments, as a function of strong family support, and so on. So, um, so in general, what we've seen is that there, there is, um, you know, a lot of hope for, you know, lack of a better term, um, that we should continue to um, think about these strategies as individuals age. Thank you for your question. Um, let's move on to the next question. The next question is um, from Sanghamitra is, does having parents during amygdala development make people more open to risk-taking and less prone to anxiety? Sanghamitra, I love this question. Um, your question really lies at the heart of attachment theory. So I'll explain. So attachment theory is, um, is I think it's, it really explains a lot of the data. It, attachment works like this. Initially in life, we have this strong interdependence with our parents. And that learning that the parent is a secure base, that the parents is always going to have your back, is exactly the ingredient that you need to feel brave to wander off and explore the environment and learn and develop cognitively and do all the things that are gonna make you a successful person. Individuals who don't feel that sense of security are less likely to explore. They're more likely to be preoccupied with their sense of safety and security in the environment. So according to attachment theory, that strong initial interdependence is what allows ultimate independence later on in life. And so, yes, at the same time that we're focused on security and being close to the parent, it gives us the gift at the same time of decreased anxiety and increased exploration and therefore learning of our environments. Very interesting. Um, thanks. Let's move to the next question. Amy asks, are you aware of any studies of the effect of lack of connection to birth parents on infants that are placed in the foster care at birth or at later periods? Um, so it's a great question. And um, uh, one uh, part of my research that I didn't focus on today was um, examining development of children after such experiences. And um, we haven't uh, focused on the, the exact question that you're asking, in part because the children in our studies, by and large, did not have contact uh, with birth parents. But what we're seeing is that um, 
adolescence is an important time to uh, really focus on this question. I mean, it's, it's always important, but adolescence seems to be a time when for everyone, our sense of identity is really starting to develop quickly. And um, children's knowledge about where they came from and who they are and who their families are start to really take um, center stage. And so um, I'm sorry, I can't answer your question directly, but I just know from speaking to parents that um, this this issue really um, is one that they're, uh, 13-year-old, for example, starts asking about a lot um, in a new way than they had when they were children. Okay, let's move to the next question. Renato asks, how can these ideas and theories be leveraged to treat anxiety disorders in adults? That's a great question. Um, so there are a number of ways that um, clinicians will treat anxiety at the behavioral level. And in part, it depends on what type of anxiety an individual is struggling with. But um, one of the um, projects that we've been working with um, in collaboration with uh, Dylan G, who's at Yale, is to understand how this learning of safety is um, critical in the adult period as well. So, um, you know, we can think about anxieties as being a reduction in fear but another way to think about um, reducing anxiety is that you're increasing your learning about safety. And so I think better understanding how we learn and represent safety at the level of the brain will um, provide new insights into anxiety reduction because it, it seems unlikely that we're going to forget or lose the memory about our fear. That memory is very strong. But if we can build up a new memory about safety, then that might be a way to more flexibly and um, reflectively handle anxieties that we're facing day to day. That sounds great. Um, we are going to take about maybe two more questions. Um, let's, let's see who the next question is, what do we have? Melissa asks, what can we do to reduce the impact of early trauma? Yeah, thanks, Melissa. Um, so, Early trauma is unfortunately the number one risk factor for um, mental health struggles later on in life. And I'm always struck by that um, statistic because this is theoretically a preventable source, a, a preventable risk factor. And yet it's not uncommon, sadly, um, particularly for children um, under the age of five. What we've been really encouraged by uh, a number of studies in our labs, as well as other colleagues, is showing that it is true that children who have these types of early exposures are at significantly elevated risk for emotion regulation difficulties. But it is also true that we find supportive later environments can be really effective maybe even more effective, um, particularly following early life stressors. And that suggests to us maybe, this is all hypothetical, but maybe there is um, some uh, retained plasticity in the system that allows uh, an adolescent or an adult to learn about um, 
new rules in the emotional world to learn about those safety cues in the environment. And so a lot of people subsequently have been interested in this question about plasticity in adulthood. How can we increase plasticity in adulthood? And it's still early days, but um, there are a number of researchers that are interested in um, behaviors like exercise, which might increase plasticity. Um, there are researchers that are interested in mindfulness and meditation as a means of increasing plasticity. But there are also researchers who point out that um, if individuals are taking pharmacologic agents, for example, Prozac, that one of the actions of Prozac may actually be to temporarily increase plasticity in the brain again. So the logic is that an individual who has experienced um, terrible things early in life, um, unfortunately, and is um, struggling with, say, anxiety or depression, that those circuits are 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 kind of rigid and it's difficult for them to learn new information. For example, if they're currently in a supportive relationship, if they currently have an effective um, therapist that they're working with, et cetera. And so one of the actions of Prozac may be to loosen up some of that rigidity so that that new learning can actually sink in. Um, so that's, it's sort of, you know, on the cutting edge of where people's thinking is now about, you know, unfortunately, some people are going to experience major um, stressors early in life. And so, um, you know, what can we do at later ages? Thank you for that question. And let's go ahead and move to our final question. Amy asks, how do you think social media affects young people's brains and development? A very, very relevant question. So as the mother of two teenage daughters who are locked in, um, in New York City, I obviously care about this question a lot. And I talk to a lot of parents about this as well. Um, so I think, um, I think the answer is it depends. Right now, what I see with my teenage daughters is that on the one hand, it's allowing them to maintain social contact with their friends. And so I'm really grateful for um, that aspect of things. I am mindful that um, they may spend too much time um, on social media, as every parent on this, <laughs> on this call probably feels the same way. And I think one of the dangers of that is that it's keeping them away from other activities that are really beneficial for them. So, um, for example, talking with your parents or, or um, doing their homework or whatever. So I think one danger to be aware of is what are they doing or what are they not doing because they're on social media? And then there are studies in adults that have shown that um, there are depressogenic effects of um, being on social media too much, depending on what you're looking at, depending on what your activity is. So in general, I would say um, it's here. It's not going anywhere. I can harp and harp on my daughters as much as I want. And um, it's going to be hard to pull them away from their social media. So um, just really trying to think about what are the, the beneficial um, uh, pieces of that. And, you know, similar questions were asked with TV, right? 
is TV uh, bad for kids? And I think the answer at the end was, it depends. It depends on what they're watching and how much they're watching it. There's there's bad TV and there's really good TV as well. But either case, we don't want that to dominate the hours that they're awake. Thank you, everyone, for all your questions. Um, that's all the content that we have planned for day for today. I want to thank um, everyone for attending. I want to thank Nim. Nim, you know, Columbia University is very lucky to have you. We're very lucky to have you to present today. Uh, thank you again for presenting at Talks at Google. Thank you, Thanks. Luke. Thanks for listening. If you have any feedback about this or any other episode, we'd love to hear from you. You can visit g.co slash talks at Google slash podcast feedback to leave your comments. To discover more amazing content, you can always find us online at youtube.com slash talks at Google, on our website, google.com slash talks, or via our Twitter handle at talks at Google. Talk soon.